products in meat. What does this mean for the future of American food production exports is just one question. Who's ultimately responsible for finding solutions? And beyond that, what will the next wave of R&D and chemistries look like? So when it comes to antibiotic resistance specifically, if this is the global health crisis, crisis that most experts believe it to be, a dangerous post-antibiotic era may already be upon us. When any major crisis hits on a global scale, be it food or non-food related, people often point fingers and they point fingers directly at the experts who had critical information that could have saved lives, uh, but the information wasn't shared with the right people at the right time. They also point their fingers at the media for not reporting the story more aggressively and more loudly and more urgently. So it brings into sharp focus the need for shared stewardship and information when it comes to these issues about resistance on the crop and plant side and with animals and humans. So today, we have three very accomplished academics um, who might defend or blow up peer review. I have no idea uh, to talk about why crop, animal, and human health experts uh, should share uh, the responsibility to help combat resistance issues and find solutions. So I'm gonna come over and I'm gonna introduce people to you. And it's really such a pleasure and privilege. And this is going to be, um, I don't want to say our most urgent panel, but it may be our most alarming. And that's not a bad thing. So Dr. Ann Vidiver Vida, uh, um, is um, a professor emerita, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Great place, great place. Um, she's held a wide range of leadership roles from the head of the Department of Plant Pathology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to director of the Center for Biotechnology and chief scientist for the USDA's National Research Initiative Competitive Grants Program. Um, her leadership roles have included a great deal of service, but to include the board president of the HAW Institute for Alternative Agriculture and chair of the Food and Agriculture Committee of the American Society for Microbiology's Public and Scientific Affairs Board. So it's really a great pleasure and privilege to have you here. Um, Dr. Peg Riley um, is a, a PhD professor at the Department of Biology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, after receiving her PhD at Harvard, Dr. Riley joined the faculty at Yale where she remained for 15 years uh, while developing um, an internationally uh, renowned research program in antimicrobial uh, drug discovery. She's co-founded a biopharmaceutical company called? Bacteriotics. Uh, LLC. Um, and that same year, she co-founded the Institute for Drug Resistance, whose mission is to facilitate um, novel multidisciplinary approaches uh, to addressing the challenge of drug resistance, which is something we'll be talking about here. She created a new um, Gordon Research Conference on drug resistance. Uh, Dr. Tim Landers is a PhD, RN. He's an assistant professor at, the Ohio, uh, at Ohio State. Dr. Landers has focused his research on uh, epidemiology and prevention of antibiotic resistant infections in lots of different settings and also in focusing on practical and evidence-based uh, strategies to prevent infections. Have I got that right? Yeah. So understanding infections and the connections here. His research on MS, uh, MRSA uh, transmission among pet owners uh, has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and his lab is uh, currently funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for a project on patient-centered hand hygiene as a means of reducing antibiotic resistance, which we have seen very much in the news lately, and mm -hmm. consumers know it, and the food that they eat in the restaurants. All right, guys, 
we've, I've, we've you know, teed this up. Um, this resistance issue, drug resistance, um, antibiotic resistance, infections, plant crops. I'm going to transport you in time because you're all such accomplished, amazing people. It's five years from now and you've won your coveted Nobel Prize. Yes. Because you've solved a huge problem. Peg? Yes. What'd you win it for? Changing the world. Oh, good. <laughs> so no, my, my Nobel Prize was awarded because I created a new arsenal of antibiotics for the 21st century. And what was special about it and deserved the Nobel Prize was that these drugs are designed to treat the pathogen and to leave the microbiome intact, doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is keeping us healthy. Explain that for the, for, for the, for the stupid among us, like me. So last night you heard from our fantastic speaker in the audience there um, that we are primarily microbial fermentation chambers. Those weren't her words, but in fact we are. 90% or so of our cells are microbes. And when we take a broad spectrum antibiotic, what do we do? We kill all of those cells. We pulverize them. There is no need to do that. We can design drugs to treat the urinary tract infection, to treat conjunctivitis, to treat ear infections, so that we don't have to target all those healthy microbes that keep so us healthy. So target medications instead of carpet that's bombing right. ourselves Designer drugs. Inside. Designer exactly. drugs. And that's what you're working on. Yes. And congratulations for your Nobel Prize. Thank you. What's your Nobel hard. Prize? <laughs> so I think uh, at the risk of offending anyone on the selection committee, my Nobel Prize <laughs> would not be in any one area. So it wouldn't be in economics or chemistry or biology or medicine. But rather, I think the message for antibiotic resistance is that we need a coordinated interdisciplinary approach to address this really important public health problem. So I think that if there were a new Nobel Prize in interdisciplinary public health research, <laughs> then um, that's, what I, that's what my prize would be. And what would it have changed? So I think the conversation across it and among disciplines kind of um, offers a synergy to our efforts to prevent infection that we currently don't have. And that's part of the beauty of this dialogue between human, animal, environmental care providers. And that's what we need. And what did you do to win? Help make plants healthy <laughs> all over the that? world. Well, essentially, that? if you notice that uh, my colleagues did not mention plants, Without plants, of course, we wouldn't have animals and people either. So it, currently we have um, a plethora of methods to deal with plant diseases. Very few are really effective for long periods of time. That's where uh, antibiotic resistance comes in and also fungicide resistance. Uh, people forget that antibiotics essentially are for bacteria, uh, which is principally a concern for people. But in the plant world, we have fungi, which is much more of a problem, and plant viruses. But there are places where currently uh, crops are in danger of being, becoming extinct because of disease. And that includes uh, citrus in Florida, citrus greening, for example. Extinct. Extinct because of disease, which is so far not been able to be dealt with. So it would be very nice to be able to um, have conquered that disease, and I don't know about Nobel Prize, but it would be perhaps a very significant factor. And the same thing for uh, our chocolate supply. The cacao trees are in danger of being 
becoming extinct due to fungal diseases, and currently there is no good remedy. And that would be a real challenge because I think everybody almost would like to see chocolate continue in our existence. So th those are major. Uh, never mind, you know, just uh, corn and soybeans and, and rice. Uh, these are continuing to have challenges. And I think with new methods, uh, essentially being able to determine what genes are involved in both resistance in plants as well as causing disease in the organisms, I think we're going to have major advances in the next few years. That would be a tremendous Nobel Prize for you to win. <laughs> Peg, um, we know a lot and we've heard a lot about antibiotic resistance, but in your words, in your estimation, how serious is this? Well, it's going to be the leading human health concern on this planet very soon. Whoa. We the, are going let's, to enter, let's say that again. The yeah. leading human health concern on the planet. On the planet. Yeah. We are losing the efficacy of our most potent drugs. And we're losing it for lots of reasons. And there's no reason to even get into why. It's a fact. That's where we are. And we have to, as a human species, we have to accept that that's where we are and try to figure out what's next. We, as a species, has to move forward and figure out, since we don't have effective drugs for many of our most <coughs> challenging diseases, you've heard of XDR-TB, totally drug-resistant TB, MRSA. You have so many different human pathogens now that you should be frightened to get because we may not be able to treat you now, today. So that's the challenge. Are you? Is she overstating this? I don't think she's overstating it at all. In fact, so many of the advances in modern medicine from uh, survival from trauma or chemotherapy or many of the surgeries that are done depend on people not dying from infections. Exactly. And so losing these very important agents is really a, a looming public health catastrophe. Peg, you're working on this. What are you doing? Let's pursue this for a minute. I am trying to make an entirely new approach to treating infectious disease. And we've been working on it for about 25 years. Basically, what we're trying to do is enter an age where rather than take a broad spectrum antibiotic that is so critical in an emergency room or in a hospital room, we want to treat those infections that are not as life-threatening with drugs that will target the specific pathogen. What kind of progress are you making? We're getting there. Um, we have drugs that are active against XDRTB, against the common urinary tract infection for the ag side. We have drugs that will eliminate mastitis in cows, one of the leading causes for prescription on a dairy farm. We don't need to be using our precious antibiotics for some of these diseases where we'll have alternatives. And so, yes, conventional antibiotics have to remain powerful and we have to keep building new ones, but there has to be a different approach. And my approach is based on the ecology of the microbes themselves. I'm a microbial ecologist. I'm not a drug maker. I'm doing this because I'm passionate and nobody else is doing it. Nobody else is doing it? It's a very few people in the world that are looking at drug discovery, drug development like this. The pharma companies don't have the incentive they don't have the scientists to do it. We've got to start changing how we think about infectious disease control. You have a product, Peg, just to stay with us for a minute, that's moving through the regulatory process. What is that? 
product and how is the process working for you? Because we hear an awful lot about the regulatory yeah. process. So one of our premier prototype products is a way to prevent urinary tract infections in women. All the women out there know this, but maybe the guys don't know this. 50% of women get urinary tract infections at least once in their life. 30% of those individuals have recurrent infections. There are some very large number of women who are on antibiotics for their lives. For their lives. Low-dose antibiotics, the worst possible scenario for drug resistance. And so we're trying to find approaches that will limit or eliminate that contamination that occurs that results in a urinary tract infection. And we're working with um, the Department of Defense on creating wipes that deployed military women can use to hmm. keep active in combat. That 50% of those women are getting UTIs out in Afghanistan, and you know it's, it's not a pretty sight. So more people, more scientists, can I just say that last panel yes. rocks? The last panel rocks. Go for it. Everybody can be a scientist, and if you don't want to be, that's fine, but you've got to think like a scientist. And what that's, does that mean, think like That a means you've got to question. You've got to research. You've got to be curious. And the, the data's out there. Just go out and find it. And if you can't find it, call me. I'll help you find it. <laughs> that's what we get paid as educators to do. So, and, and I agree with our previous panel. We've got to start young. Our youngest minds have the most creativity, and it's our job to make science fun and real for them. So I really applaud that last panel. Tim, let me move to you, and I agree totally. It was a great <laughs> panel, and we do need to do all those things. Tim, you're, as a certified nurse practitioner, you see the sort of human impact of a lot of this. I'm wondering if you could explain some of what you're seeing and where that leads you. Yeah, sure. So we are rapidly encountering um, an era where we're post-antibiotics and, and antibiotics, post -antibiotics. Mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the post-antibiotic era is where we don't have drugs to treat these really important infections. And um, to understand the kind of epidemiology and the emergence of resistance, it's really important that we look across sectors to look at all of those of us who are stewards of antibiotics. And antibiotics are precious resources that we need to conserve their efficacy. And so we know in the human healthcare setting that antibiotics are very commonly prescribed. Maybe around half the time they're prescribed inappropriately. We also know that many antibiotics are used in agriculture and that it's used for a variety of benefits, very important benefits. And there's been a lot of finger pointing um, between the human and, and the animal side. And we, we need to come together and look at how we steward these precious resources to understand the economic benefits, the animal welfare benefits of use on the ag side, and to understand the complexities of, of resistance in humans. We know what some of the public invective sounds like with, around all of this. Mm -hmm. But actually, sorry, so some of the public invective, the, the debate and the controversy, does solving it require a coalition and a coalition approach? And if so, involving whom? Yeah, so uh, definitely uh, coordinated interdisciplinary approach is absolutely required. And in fact, all of us breaking down even the idea of disciplines and that maybe our discipline is stewardship. Yeah. And that we work together to conserve these across every setting and reach these other very important goals. And let me turn to you, if I may, and, and ask you this question. Is resistance in the crop and plant world related to this discussion we've been having about antibiotic resistance in the animal world, and if so, how? 
Uh, it is because, for example, at least in the United States, we have some antibiotics that are used in human medicine, though not very often, that are uh, approved for use in treating some bacterial diseases. And not surprisingly, for example, fire blight that affects apples and pears, uh, resistance is very common now, and essentially there's no alternative. And because um, the food that many of us eat, such as apples and raspberries and so forth, are not considered of economic importance relative to corn and soybeans, uh, there's essentially no effective uh, alternative at the present time. And so that's for bacteria. And then for fungi, it's actually the other way around. In human beings, uh, fungal diseases are much more rare than for bacteria. And the fungal community and the medical community has taken some of those um, fungicides, and they're calling them mycotic agents, and use those to treat fungal infections in people. Mm. Uh, but then you're also encountering the same thing in people as in plants becoming resistant to the fungicides. So it is, uh, it, it is very um, disturbing to see that. And a colleague and I have just finished a chapter for the American Society for Microbiology uh, illustrating that people should be more aware, at least scientists who work with microorganisms, particularly bacteria and fungi, of how they work with them because there's an increasing number that cross from plants to people. So I was going to ask you, how can so, plants, people, and animals work together to solve Well, we need, we need um, much more discussion and interdisciplinary work. And is that happening? Uh, well, it's starting. Starting? <laughs> it is. But I'm hearing yes. like a, a, a red light flashing yes. crisis, and I'm it hearing is. that we're just starting. So oh. it feels to me like, are we behind, way behind the curve? We are, we are way behind the curve, yeah. yes. I mean, it's yes. not that we've just but, started. No. People, scientists have been working on this for years, but the funding has been almost non-existent for some of these problems. And getting the public aware of the role they can play as an individual consumer of an antibiotic or of an individual consumer of a food product that, was that required the use of antibiotics. I mean, that's where we have to go. We have to educate. How about as an individual proprietor of a farm? Absolutely, because you have the challenges as a farmer. Your, your job is to keep your animals healthy if, if you deal with animals or your crops healthy. And antibiotics are important for that. However, we have to find a way to save the precious antibiotics that are required to keep humans alive separated from how we go about keeping our crops healthy and our animals healthy. It's not a us versus them. We have to do it all. And we can, but we need more people thinking that way, more people being trained to target pathogens so that we can do something for mastitis in cows that won't require a drug that we need for humans. It's okay. real simple. Yeah. So essentially, we should, we, we've done the easy things. I mean, the broad spectrum drugs have been extremely effective, except we're hearing, we are now nearing that end. So we have to target much more, much more. Many in the healthcare community consider that the failure to develop or the lack of development of new antibiotics is the true culprit here, and that that's the problem in this sort of burgeoning uh, healthcare crisis. Um, that the R&D pipeline is dry or simply running low. Your thoughts on that, that that's where the problem lies? 
so a absolutely that the, the economic incentives for new antibiotic drug discovery has, has been identified as a major gap in addressing antibiotic resistance. But there are other very, very important interventions of things that we should be doing to address antibiotic resistance. So things like infection prevention or hygiene activities, right. cohorting, and, and looking at other alternative ways of, of treating these infections is absolutely important. And we've gotten really comfortable in our silos, right? And so there are important lessons from livestock production that the human healthcare system could really learn from. Things like uh, integrating vaccination with hygiene, environmental cleaning, uh, cohorting, and, and kind of understanding herd dynamics. But we've just we've stopped learning those lessons, and I think we're starting to now. And I think that's the call going forward. Peg? So I think it's really easy to point a finger and say, well, big farmer's not doing its job. I will attribute this to Einstein. I'm not sure if it's an attribute that's correct. <laughs> the definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different outcome. We know exactly what will happen when Big Farmer does invest a billion dollars in 15 years to produce the next big drug. We will use it, probably overuse it, and resistance will emerge within three months. Is that what we should be doing? No. We've got to get out of this cycle of let's find the big super pill and think about it fundamentally differently. Whether you agree with the way I think about it or not, doesn't matter. We have to think about it differently. And that's where innovation comes in. And you were talking to the last panel about innovation. We have to think about infectious disease from an innovative perspective, which means getting out of our labs, getting off the farm, getting out of the schools, and just thinking about it differently, bringing these kinds of people together to gain insight into how thinking we can Thinking about it differently it. meaning what? I, I'm not, I'm uh, well, in my case, thinking about it as we don't want to kill the microbes. They are part of us. We want to kill the pathogen. That's just, there are so few pathogens. Microbes get such a rotten name. Yeah. We are a microbial planet. They've been here for three plus billion years. They're going to be here well after we're extinct. We got to stop fighting them and join together to find a way to live with them better. I have a question here from Jenny Schwager who says, I have to respectfully ask if the ABX resistance we're hearing about is backed by lab research on human medical studies and trials. Well, I can definitely address some of that. And, we, and uh, the evidence is conflicting that we've done surveillance of hospitalized patients looking for common resistance pathogens that are present or that are ubiquitous in, in agricultural settings, and we haven't found them. We do know, though, that people who live near pig farms may have a slightly higher risk of MRSA colonization, but not of the same strain that the pigs may be carrying. And so, um, we actually are doing active surveillance and looking at kind of one health approaches to humans, animals, and the environment. And right now, um, you know, the, the evidence is, is unclear. So the, um, there are not significant differences between resistant pathogens on organically raised or traditionally raised meat products, for example. And so um, we can't say definitively that, um, you know, that there is a causative link. I got to jump in. Go ahead. Mm. Jump. So, as I said before, I'm a microbial ecologist and evolutionary biologist, and for the past 30 years, I've been studying the evolution of resistance genes themselves. Forget about what species of bacteria you find them in. First of all, they are very ancient. Some of ours we can estimate are two and a half billion years old. These are the genes we're worrying about. They have a role in the natural environment. 
they have increased in frequency because of a very simple rule. If you tell a bug you're going to die if you don't have this gene, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to get it one way or the other through kinky bacterial sex, right? It's going to happen. So let's sex. stop pointing fingers and worrying about, well, where did it come from? Well, it came from nature. Originally, we've just used antibiotics in ways that have selected for the increase in frequency, whether it be on the farm or in the community or in the hospital. It doesn't matter where it came from. It's there. Let's deal with it. Okay, and but I want to add, so to that point, though, I want to ask the question that Sebastian from our last panel submits for you. Okay. How do we fight overprescription at the point of care? Oh, Sebastian, would you just come and help us develop a campaign? <laughs> I mean, I, oh, it's just sad because my Big own, problem? My own mom will say, well, go get a drug, Peg, if your ear hurts. Mom, it'll resolve. I just have to whine about it for a few hours, okay? <laughs> so it's a very challenging issue, and we need better educational programs and campaigns. And I think one of the interesting paradoxes that we saw yesterday was the number of consumers who are now demanding antibiotic-free poultry. Mm -hmm. And those are the same patients who come into a human health clinic and demand an antibiotic for a viral infection. Yeah. Right? So we need and an antibiotics education course in Absolutely. the country that cuts across Absolutely. all of these things. Yeah. But are those, are those people who are demanding antibiotic-free food, are they misguided? So antibiotics do serve an important role in animal production. Do we know that there are benefits to antibiotic-free production? We clearly don't. There's more science that needs to be done, um, and, and there are important economic benefits. But um, my point was that the lessons learned from that consumer, the demand side, could really transfer over to this idea of over-prescribing. Antibiotics are life-saving drugs when they're needed. So much like an airbag in a car, if you're driving down the road and you hit something front on, you want the airbag to go off. But any other time... Bad news. Very bad news. <laughs> right, right. And uh, one more here uh, on the panel, and then I'd like to turn it to your questions, and I'm sure there are many of them because so many of you have dealt with this story in one form or another, or stories. Um, Let's turn to some of the food companies and where they're playing a role in this conversation now. Many of them are working with farmers and they're working with communities and scientists and others to reduce or eliminate certain kinds of, of, of antibiotics in the ways that they're using. Um, this is helpful, um, but is it a stopgap measure uh, given the scale of the challenge and the problem? It would be a stopgap measure because essentially uh, microbes can multiply faster than we can get uh, resistant plants, for example. Uh, and also we have issues these days dealing with uh, increased trade, increased travel, and also uh, climate change that are influencing both the types of microorganisms that uh, can survive and how well they do. And so it's not going to be an easy situation. How significant is the climate change part of this? We, we really don't know, but there are suspicions, for example, that some diseases, well, some diseases we know have come from other countries into and very unusual climatic uh, situations. Uh, for example, soybean rust in the United States uh, was not predicted to be here for at least a century, and that uh, only required very unusual climatic conditions for that to occur. So. I'm sorry, but can I Ro just... Roll of the foot. Go ahead. I just want to comment on something my colleague Tim just said. I haven't thought about this before the same way. So we have customers 
who are desperate for food that was raised antibiotic-free, and yet they will go to their doctors and insist upon an antibiotic for a viral infection. We educators are, are failing. If they can be more worried about having chicken raised without antibiotics than knowing that in their own body they shouldn't be taking antibiotics for a viral infection, we're failing as educators. I wonder what your thoughts are on the role of the food company and the question that I asked Anne, though, in terms of is this a stopgap measure? Should the true, true mission here be to address overprescribing on the farm more broadly? Should the food company be the information provider on, well, on all of this? Sure. I mean, if yeah. you think about it, you know, 70-some percent of the antibiotics that are produced on the planet are used on the farm. Hmm. So, these are precious commodities. Seventy percent are used on the farm. They're also used. They're not all just used willy-nilly, too. Oh, oh no, no, very no. Very precisely and in a very targeted way. I'm not saying create, that, because I think this is also something that's lost. Yeah. We have the most healthy food, or the healthiest, cleanest, most sanitary food ever in human history. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Mm. And let's mm. follow that up with the fact that if it is where we're using our antibiotics, we can have a huge impact by more careful stewardship of that commodity on the farm. The same with reducing our overprescription for human health. It has to go hand in hand. But yes, it is a stopgap uh, venture. I, I agree with Anne because, you know, I'm, I'm a horse gal. I have a horse, and my horse is already down the road running away saying, yeah, it's, we're, it's out of the gate. We have the resistance, and this resistance is not going to just disappear when we stop using antibiotics. It's still there, and as soon as we use an antibiotic, we're going to select for it again. I want to come to the floor and take your questions, and let's see who's got a hand up for a question. Anybody? So if I could just make Go, go ahead while you're doing that. Sure, while you're absolutely. Getting... And, and so, um, as Peg said, it, the, these efforts have to go hand in hand, and they're not mutually exclusive, right. right? We should be doing things across sectors. And so I predict that GFI is going to be a complete failure unless it's part of a comprehensive interdisciplinary strategy that looks at anti antibiotic use across settings. Yeah. <laughs> is Carolyn O'Neill still in the room? Where's Carolyn O'Neill? I've just re-employed her. I just sent her back to CNN. And she's got to go do a daily health and science show. Yes, please. What do you, <laughs> what would you tell her with respect to this conversation we're having and food and agriculture and the farm that she should focus on and that the audience needs to hear. Peg? Oh, um, geez, it's just, there's so many different directions you yes. can take this in. We, we do want food that has been raised with careful stewardship of our precious commodities. But what I would ask her to focus on is the more immediate impact that we can have by how we use prescription drugs. So I know this is an agricultural forum, but I think we should stop pointing fingers and just think about our own actions. And what's the biggest impact I can have today is not take a drug if I don't need it. And how about you take us back to the to plants and that? And yeah, crops. well, it, it's, it's similar in that we should try to uh, look forward to more narrow spectrum antimicrobials, whether or not it's antibiotics or antifungal agents or even antivirals, which essentially for plant agriculture are missing. 
And I have a question too, because Peg and I, I sent it in a little email, but you know, with um, positive solutions uh, um, rather than like, oh, stop doing this. Let's get back to the microbiome for a minute. And we're making insulin in our apartments now too. So um, can feeding the good bugs in your microbiome help in any way to battle the bad bugs that are involved in the antibiotic resistance? Can folks be doing this through probiotics, prebiotics, eating more fruits? Is, is that a, something people can do right now? Yes, it's a viable option. Unfortunately, for reasons that we can argue about later, um, the National Institutes of Health has not funded that research so that as a scientist I can say, yes, and if you do it, there's an X percent chance that those will become resident in your gut, and that's a good thing. I can't tell you that, and I can't tell you which probiotic is the best to use, but I can tell you that if I have to take an antibiotic, which I rarely ever would ever do, I'm gonna be taking probiotics just as an individual comment. <laughs> so, so my story Doc. idea for Caroline, which is the livestock story waiting to be told, is to get puppies and, yes. and talk about our relationship yeah. with animals. Yeah. And, and that's a very compelling message. And the take-home point is that our microbiomes are shared and that we live mm -hmm. in a very rich ecology of billions and billions mm -hmm. of, of bacteria that um, are beneficial to us and we share them. And, and so the cow selfies we saw yesterday are very compelling, and it's kind of a, a neutral way to talk about the issue of, of antibiotic stewardship. Get a puppy. Get a puppy as the lead of the story. That, yes. Hey, how, Bring the how antibiotics in. are used for an ear infection gave this puppy an abscess. Yep. And what's the story? What's your response? It's, it's, it's really tough, but in terms of alternatives to fungicides, there are biocontrol agents out there Everybody every, who's done science in the plant area can find them, uh, trying to manipulate them so that they will do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it is an extreme challenge. So that at the present time, we have very few biocontrol agents living, which would be the ideal, that is they come from nature and would compete with pathogens. But ideally, we should have much more of that. Question on the side in the back. From a pub public policy standpoint, the re reaction in Washington has been ban all antibiotics. Uh, a lot of the folks that are anti-animal agriculture have jumped on this and said, hey, we need to ban all the, the antibiotics use on the farm. That approach seems to be, from what you're saying, short-sighted. What should be the public policy response to the crisis that you guys have outlined? Okay, and have at so, it. That's a terrific question. And yeah. as we talk about what we should not be doing is working in silos, what do we do? So we do need to look at integrated, coordinated surveillance programs across humans, animals, and the environment, including plants. Mm -hmm. But this coordinated surveillance approach with a coordinated um, kind of approach to stewardship and, and how we manage these limited resources. We need to be looking at rapidly innovating new antibiotics, new uh, diagnostic tests, and really uh, looking at our global world and understanding resistance transmission. So, um, you know, that is kind of the core message. We need to be doing all of these things at the same time. I have a very personal question for each of you from the floor here from Carrie who writes and asks, when you see the antibiotic-free claim at the grocery store, what do you think and what do you buy? That's not the chief factor for me. It's a question of what does, uh, what does it taste like and um, <laughs> uh, relative cost. Uh, 
those kinds of issues. You're like everybody else. Well. Or like most everybody else, I, I suppose. Tim? Uh, so, you know, the questions, right? Um, the antibiotic-free label, does it mean that there's no residuals, that no sick animals were treated? That, that's a problem from <laughs> that's an animal problem. welfare perspective. As a consumer, as I see it. Does it mean that the meat is any healthier? No. Does it mean it's any better? No. Um, does it so make you mad when you see that? It, 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 it's a little irritating because <laughs> I have to go through this whole mental thing mm -hmm. and then you know, do my yeah. deep breathing exercises about <laughs> really what, what is that label yeah. trying to yeah. tell me? Right? I solve this by I stay in the lab and my husband does the shopping. <laughs> um, yes. He does the cooking too. He does the, he does the cooking, the cleaning, the shopping. Um, so, but to, I mean, it's so frustrating, these labels, and, and an earlier panel was discussing this issue with labeling and GMOs and all that, and it's just hysteria, and it drives me mad. Exactly what Tim said. What does it actually mean to say antibiotic-free, and do we care? I mean, we have a precious commodity that we as a race have to, or a species, have to decide how we are going to manage it. And it might be that that's the right avenue, but let's talk about it as, as a species. Let's figure this out. Where do we want to use these drugs that actually still can save lives, but in the future will not? Uh, a lot of people feel that um, companies are reluctant to invest in this area, reluctant to invest in new antibiotics on the animal side, new pest control on the plant side um, because of financial risk, public legal exposure. Do you feel that's the case? If so, why? Well, it costs enormous amounts of money to bring anything to market, particularly perhaps in Western uh, countries. Uh, and, but it's, it's also not known widely that there are avenues for more narrow spectrum um, antibiotics and fungicides to be marketed, at least in the United States. For example, I don't know in agriculture that they've taken advantage of the equivalent of the Orphan Drug Act, which allows pharmaceutical companies to pursue drugs that would otherwise not get a big market. And um, the regulations, I understand, are less stringent to be able to help people with very um, rare diseases. And I don't think that we have an equivalent in agriculture although we have something known as IR4, which is almost understa un, not understandable by anyone in agriculture, much less the public, about um, allowing research to go on for looking at the uses of um, materials that would otherwise not make it to market on so-called minor crops, which is what most of us eat, our vegetables and fruits, for example. And then for the EPA, there is an avenue for reduced risk materials, and I don't know that um, companies have pursued that avenue either. So, so there are some possibilities. Tim, Peg, quickly, so, and then we'll go back to the floor. Yeah, so quickly, if, if I were a drug company and looking to invest, I would want to get an antihypertensive or an antidepressant that I know that <laughs> patients are going to be on for years or decades, and, and not an antibiotic that someone's going to take for 10 days and be done. So I'm looking forward to five years from now when I won't be getting a Nobel Prize, but I will be looking at Bayer saying, you guys have helped change the world because you got it. Mm. And you started investing in this narrow spectrum approach. Mm. And that's what I want to see. Mm. And they can. It's, it's just a tough business model. Last question from the floor. Maybe I missed. Oh, second to last question from the floor. <laughs> <laughs> OK, 
up. Uh, go ahead there. Sorry. Where's the bridge between what happens with an animal and what happens with human? Are we suggesting in those antagonists that the antibiotic that was fed to the animal is pumped full of the meat and the meat after I cook it is going to survive and there's, where's the bridge of the resistance? Yeah. I've yet to see it. That's a, that's a great question. There are lots of studies following that and for some of them there's really solid data of a bridge but the bridge is not where you, would, might, you might expect it. So for example, the bridge could be that the farmers themselves are now carrying the microbes from the cow or the pig or just from the dirt and, and those now make it into the community. And, and if you wonder how could that possibly be true, I have found microbes that are absolutely identical in DNA sequence, meaning they shared a very recent ancestor from completely opposite sides of the globe. How can that be? Well, because microbes move all the time. So what happens on the farm doesn't stay on the farm. It's going other places, just like what happens in the hospital doesn't stay in the hospital. We can't control with boundaries or very large, expensive walls. We can't control where microbes go. They're going to go. They're going to move. And so again, that's why we shouldn't be pointing fingers. It, these things are going to spread. They have been spreading for you know, all of human civilization between animals and humans and back. Anything you want to add to that? I think the other thing to consider is that, that there is limited data, you're right, about direct foodborne transmission, for example. We have more data on contact transmission of these resistant organisms. And we haven't really talked about the indirect routes of transmission through the environment, water, and that, which is a possibility. And, and the, the evidence, again, is conflicting. But these are, as we're looking at a global strategy, that we need to be considering all, all sectors. Question. Um, actually, it's, it's kind of down that same vein. Uh, just tell everybody who you are. And oh, I'm sorry. I'm Kyle Bauer from Kansas. Um, I heard a discussion recently about pets in the home, and you, met, you brought up pets. But also, we have almost no concern with giving our pets antibiotics, and yet we live in close proximity to pets. Isn't there a significant risk with our pets spreading an antibiotic-resistant bug to us. I never hear it discussed. Well, I mean, the, you, you share your microbiome in part with your pets. That's just the reality of it. You spend a lot of time hugging and petting them and kissing them on the nose. And, and so it shouldn't surprise you that if we look at your microbiome, you're going to have some strains that are, came from, you know, Toto, the dog. Um, and vice versa. And vice versa. <laughs> and, and that's okay. That's okay. N normally, we're healthy and we can fight against the fact that if any of those were pathogens, that might be a problem. But generally, they're not a problem. So you're not going to get a pet owner to stop using an antibiotic. They're passionate about their pets. But what we can do is develop a different type of antibiotic for those pets. That would be one step forward. And, and my goal is to look for solutions, not to just focus on the problem, you know, ad nauseum. And, and the point is well taken that our relationships with our pets are emotionally intense and physically intimate, and arguably more intimate than we are with our children or our spouses. We greet them, you know, you know right away. The other, the other thing that... I might dispute that. <laughs> Do you have a pet? Right, you have a pet. And a wife. <laughs> <laughs> Who's watching? Maybe they both are, right? Um, but the other thing that 
just in terms of the overall ecology, that there are organisms that are non-pathogenic to animals, that are pathogenic to humans, and vice versa. And so really, it's, it's a complex ecology, and that's why it takes all of us putting our heads together. Yeah. If there's another question from the floor, I'll do it. Otherwise, we're going to wrap up with one last one here, okay? I'm going to take you back to our time travel exercise. And despite your modesty, you did win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> this is an amazing panel, because never before has a group like this had three Nobel Prizes. <laughs> but seriously, if you were to get to that breakthrough point, whether you had a Nobel Prize or not, over the next, let's say, five years, what are we in this room? What is Bear Crop Science and other companies, what are farmers and citizens doing together to get there, to solve these problems, to innovate in this way so that we can preserve all this wonderful progress we've made and do more and innovate more as we have heard from so many people here today? What needs to happen in your view over these next several years. Tim? So I think we need to keep having the conversation. And so there's a, you know, the negative press about factory farms and CAFOs. But, but the conversation we need to have is about modern, high-tech, scientifically derived, state-of-the-art agricultural practices, which do at present include the use of antibiotics. And so we need to have that conversation about what, what are the ways that we can steward the resource that is antibiotic resistant so that we have a health healthy, safe um, food supply, as well as animals that we can live, at, live with who, who are safe and, and healthy. So be public, have the conversation, bring the different disciplines together to have this openly. Anne. Well, I think we need much more information on what constitutes resistance in plants. And now that we can uh, essentially um, genetically engineer, as well as be able to determine the genetic information in plants more readily than we ever could, it's quite possible that we'd be able to isolate the resistance genes and be able to manufacture materials from them and use them in a very judi judicious way that has nothing to do with animals or humans. Peg. I think we've made tremendous progress in educating in five years. I think we have people like those on the last panel that are taking science and making it, you know, democratizing science, if you will. But even if it's not democracy, at least it's, it's easy, consumable bits of information so that each of you can make choices that work for you about how you think about antibiotics, how you fund antibiotic develop, drug discovery and, and development, and, and how you value the agricultural community and their you know, significant response to this challenge as well. So it's education, education, education. But it's also innovation, invention, investigation, right? It's the, oh, well, it's we're the, doing that all the well, time well, anyway. Right, but yeah, you've got to have yeah. some breakthroughs along the way here. Well, we do. Just come to my lab. Go ahead, Ann. What'd you say? <laughs> yeah. And don't forget investment. Both oh, private sector and has public to be. sector. Otherwise, uh, it's not going to really improve. Well, I hope you will join me in thanking our three Nobel Prize winners here today <laughs> for your tremendous comments. Thank you. And I, you, I, I think what you have said, so much of what you have said is so important. A, understand the urgency. B, keep this conversation going. C, keep science in the middle of it and not lose sight of the fact that there is so much out there and it's so easy to inflame and to scare mm -hmm. that in some cases we want to make